It's great to see so many here with us this morning. You know, there are people that only go to church at Easter time and Christmas time. And if you're one of those, you're particularly welcome. Wouldn't it be great if we were this full every Sunday and that we had to use overflow every, every Sunday? You know, there's people here that have heard the Easter story, the gospel message, hundreds of times. There are others that have only heard it once or twice. Some of you may never have heard it. And even those of you that have heard it many times, there are always some that don't quite get it, that don't quite understand it. Every year when Easter approaches, I try and find a new book on Easter because I want to get something fresh. There's so much to the Easter story. And so two books that I have uh, read in preparation for Easter this year are Understanding the Resurrection by David Pawson and another book called Real Pain, His Pain is Your Gain by Mitch Richardson. And so today I'm going to try and explain the Easter story as simply and as clearly as I can. Now, you know, we're all impacted by our family culture and the beliefs that we grow up with. And sometimes we can have blind spots. Sometimes we've been made to think a certain way and so we just don't get it. So I'm just going to pray that you get it this morning. All right. Now you're saying, oh, he thinks he knows everything and what he says is true. But what I'm praying for is a revelation of the truth. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that there is a creator God, that this world didn't happen by chance. And we say that you are God this morning. Lord, I pray that you will open our minds and our hearts so that we can see you for who you are that we can really understand who Jesus was and is and what he did for us on that cross. So be with us, lead us and guide us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, 2,000 years ago in Israel, a 33-year-old man named Jesus was unfairly executed by the Romans. He was, his body was put into a tomb for three days and for three nights. But then on the fourth day, he was alive. He was walking and talking with his friends. He was around for about 40 days. And then he ascended up into heaven. Millions of people today believe that Jesus is still alive and that one day he will return to earth. This is the core belief of the Christian faith. And in the Bible, in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, it says, For 40 days after his death, he appeared to the disciples many times in ways that proved beyond doubt that he was alive. They saw him, and he talked with them about the kingdom of God. You know, today, a third of the world's population claim to be Christian and to believe in Jesus. The whole Christian faith stands or falls on whether or not Jesus was raised from the dead. If this didn't happen, then we're all part of a massive deception. 
And Jesus said in Matthew 6 verse 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Many influential people accept that Jesus was a great moral teacher. Muslim people believe that he was a great prophet, but nothing more than that. Philosophers such as Plato, Socrates and Aristotle are now dead, as are military leaders such as Julius Caesar, Napoleon Bonaparte and Adolf Hitler, spiritual leaders such as Confucius, Buddha and Muhammad are all dead. Jesus was dead, but now is alive. In Revelation 1 verse 18, Jesus said, I am the living one. I died. But look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. So what are your views about the resurrection? Without the resurrection, there are no grounds to believe in Jesus. The resurrection proves that Jesus is much more than just a moral teacher or a prophet. Without the resurrection, much of what Jesus said about himself would simply just not be true. And this would make Jesus either a liar or a madman, a lunatic. And so every single one of us must decide whether Jesus was mad, bad, or God. Faith is based on facts, not on feelings. So let's briefly look at the sequence of events that led up to the resurrection. Jesus had predicted that he would die and that he would be raised again after three days. So after he died, the Jews put a heavy stone weighing several tons across the entrance to his tomb, and they sealed his tomb. Then soldiers were ordered to stand guard at that tomb for those three days and those three nights, just to make sure that the disciples didn't steal his body and claim that he'd come alive again. <clears throat> Jesus had been buried so quickly that his body hadn't been properly prepared for burial. They wound him in a long piece of linen along with fragrant ointments and spices. After three days, early on the Sunday morning, some women came to properly anoint Jesus' body. They were surprised to find that the stone had been rolled away and the soldiers had gone. The Bible tells us there had been an earthquake and an angel had moved the stone. So the woman discovered an empty tomb. One of the women hung around. She loved Jesus and she wanted to know where his body was. Jesus appeared to her, but she thought that he was the gardener. And she grabbed him and asked him what he'd done with the body. He said, don't touch me. And she recognized his voice. Mary was the first to know that Jesus was alive. And she ran off to tell the disciples. 
They didn't believe her. But Peter and John raced to the tomb to check things out for themselves. John stood at the entrance to the tomb. He looked in and he saw that that piece of linen that Jesus had been wrapped in was still wound up but lying flat with no body inside it. Peter and John knew that something supernatural had happened since the body was gone. Later that day, Jesus appeared to two men on the road to Emmaus, a town just a short distance out of Jerusalem. Those men had heard about Jesus and were excited about Jesus, but they didn't recognize Jesus when he joined them on the journey. They told Jesus how disappointed they were that Jesus hadn't done what they'd expected. They invited Jesus to dinner at their place and to stay the night. Jesus explained to them that Jesus had to die, that Jesus had to take the punishment for a sinful world. When they invited Jesus to break bread with them, they saw the nail prints in his hands and they realized who he was. Then Jesus vanished, but they had no doubt as to who he was. And one of them raced back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples. The disciples didn't believe him, but as they were talking, Jesus appeared to them. Now some of you are thinking, oh yeah, okay, good story. I don't know if I really believe this stuff. It's a bit like a fairy tale to me. So what is the real evidence that that resurrection really took place, that Jesus really was risen from the dead? The first point is that the body disappeared, even though it was carefully guarded. Skeptics were unable to produce the body. So there's no scientific evidence as such but there is a lot of legal and historical evidence. You know, the best legal evidence is eyewitness evidence, followed by circumstantial evidence, things that can be proven without reasonable doubt. For example, say a woman's body was found at the bottom of a cliff. This could pose the question, was she pushed? Or did she fall? But someone could come along and they, say, and they could say, look, I saw her walking up the track to that cliff with a man. And later someone else says, well, I saw that man walking back down that track and he was on his own. But if someone had actually seen him push her over, that would be what we call eyewitness evidence. But each little bit of evidence helps to build a case. Sometimes details and testimony disagree. For example, say you're out on the lake in your boat and you swerve to miss a swimmer in the, in the water. And in swerving you collide with another boat. And then there's an inquiry about what happens, what happened. And someone says, yes, there was a swimmer in the water. Someone else said, there were two swimmers. I saw two swimmers in the water. They're both saying what they saw, but they actually saw 
different things. And that's a good thing because it convinces lawyers that there is no collusion. They're both independent witnesses who are retelling the truth as they saw it. In the Bible, there are different accounts of what happened with regard to Jesus' death and resurrection in the four different Gospels. And also in Acts, there's different accounts. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where they really go into detail about what happened, there are different facts found. And some writers have gone through all the sources and they've tried to put everything in order and make sense of everything that they saw. One witness says there was one angel in the tomb. Another said there were two. There were over 500 witnesses who saw Jesus. So there was a lot of circumstantial evidence. The second evidence for the resurrection is the disciples. When Jesus was killed, they were worried that they could also be arrested and crucified and killed. So they went underground. They were terrified. But suddenly, after seeing Jesus and after hearing Jesus tell them to go into all the world and tell everyone what had happened, they were transformed. In fact, instead of being terrified of the Romans and the Jews, they went out publicly speaking against them and accusing them of murdering Jesus. Eleven of the twelve disciples were executed for their claims of seeing Jesus after the resurrection. Would you give your life for a lie? Look at this quote from Chuck Colson, who was an advisor to President Nixon at the, at the time of Watergate. He says, I know that the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it wasn't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world. And they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. The third evidence for the resurrection is that the Jews who believed in Jesus suddenly changed their day of worship. Now as Jews, they worshipped on the seventh day, the Saturday. But suddenly, Sunday became the worship day for the Christian church. And why are we worshipping today on a Sunday? It's because Jesus was resurrected on the Sunday. And so this is a very special day to us. It was very inconvenient for Jewish Christians at that time to work, worship on a Sunday because worship, uh, Sunday was a working day and they had to get up early to go to church before they went to work. The fourth piece of evidence for the resurrection is that people, people's lives have been transformed. 
there's so many people that have been living a life of crime or addiction and they've had an encounter with Jesus Christ and their life has been transformed. There are people who have been healed in the name of Jesus. There have been people with evil spirits that have been cast out of them in the name of Jesus. And those spirits are subject to the name of Jesus Christ. The fifth piece of evidence for the resurrection is the church today. Thousands have believed the apostles' claim that Jesus has risen. As I said, over a third of the world population professes to be Christian and here we are on Easter Sunday the most important year in the church calendar because we believe that Jesus rose from the dead many lawyers and investigative writers such as Frank Morrison C.S. Lewis and Lee Strobel all set out to disprove the resurrection. But they became Christians because they couldn't deny the evidence. So what is the significance of the resurrection to the world at large today? Firstly, it confirmed that Jesus was who he said he was. On ten different occasions during his time on earth, Jesus claimed to be God. He even called God Abba, which meant Dad. Calling yourself God in those days was viewed as blasphemy, a crime worthy of death. The Romans said that there is no king but Caesar, there is no God but Caesar. And so if you claim to be God or you claim to worship another God, that was blasphemy and it carried a death sentence. Jesus went and preached in his hometown of Nazareth. And after he spoke, his friends and relatives and neighbours took him up a nearby hill and tried to push him off. But God rescued him. They wanted to kill him because they knew that the Romans could come into their village and kill everyone in the village who was supporting the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. There were other false messiahs at that time who were killed by the Romans. Other people whose whole village was destroyed. Eventually, the time came for Jesus to die. Jesus said to his disciples, it's time to go to Jerusalem. He foretold his death in great detail. He, he told them where how and when he'd die. He gave so much detail that you could almost call it a case of euthanasia. He completely planned his own death. But the resurrection proved he was who he said he was and that he had the approval of God. Crucifixion was the most painful, humiliating death Imagine being nailed naked to a cross. During his six hours on the cross, Jesus' main concerns were for his disciples, even the soldiers, and his mother. 
He said to his disciple John, John, will you look after my mum for me? After three hours of agony, the sun disappeared and there was three hours of darkness. And during that time, God left him on his own. Jesus died for our sins, for our wrongdoings. He experienced hell in our place so that we can live forever. The disciples' faith was shattered during the three days that Jesus was in the tomb. The resurrection proved that God had accepted Jesus' death so that we also can conquer death and that we can live beyond the grave. Our God is a God of justice as well as mercy. He cannot forgive sin unless it's paid for. Jesus gave his life in exchange for your life and for my life. A substitution was made at the cross. Jesus was who he claimed to be and he accomplished what he came to do. I read a story of a pastor who brought an empty birdcage into the pulpit one Sunday morning. He shared how he'd met a young boy who'd caught some birds. The pastor asked him what he was going to do with the birds. The boy replied that he was going to play with them and then he was going to feed them to the cat. Sorry, Jackie. Um, oh, but that's probably all right because Jackie actually likes cats. The pastor asked how much she want, he wanted for the birds. The, court, the boy couldn't believe that the pastor wanted to pay for the birds. So he said $10. The pastor gave him $10 and then set the birds free. Then the pastor shared the story of how humanity was in Satan's cage of sin and death. One day Jesus came to Satan and asked, what are you going to do with the people on earth? Satan said, I'm going to play with them and afterwards I'm going to kill them. Jesus asked, how much do you want for the people? Satan replied, your life for their life. And so Jesus gave up his life and by so doing, he set the people free. So what does this mean to us today? One day Jesus will return to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If the claims Jesus made about himself are valid, then they're also valid for you and for me. Despite the evidence, many people choose to ignore Jesus and to remain independent of God. Don't resist him. Accept his gift of salvation and live your life in obedience to him. We're going to enjoy some more worship and then we're going to enter into a time of communion. Bless you. Thank you. time of communion together. One morning after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples on the beach. 
The disciples had fished all night and caught nothing. But Jesus stepped into their situation. Cast your net on the other side of the boat, he said. In John chapter 21 verse 6. They obeyed and they caught many fish. The disciples were just ordinary blokes like you and I. Peter was a coward. Thomas, a doubter. James and John wanted to be on the left and the right of Jesus when he went to heaven. Jesus knew their faults and their imperfections. In spite of their weaknesses and their failings, he loved them and he accepted them. He wanted to hang out with them and cook them breakfast. Jesus, the servant king, had anticipated the needs of these weak and weary disciples. Let's imagine Jesus cooking breakfast for us this morning to guide and shape our thinking about him today. Are there things from your past that haunt you? Have you gone your own way and turned your back on Jesus? Do you have feelings of guilt, failure and shame? Do you feel tired, downtrodden and weary? Are you frustrated, lonely, lacking purpose in life? Jesus comes looking for you. He will find you and he will reach out to you in love. Even if you can't see or feel his presence, Jesus is still here with us and there with you. Ask him to reveal himself to you in a special way. Ask him to help you, to feed you and to nourish you. Desire to achieve all that he has planned for your life and to help you help others to find an eternity of love in God. So let's all close our eyes. Imagine the early morning mist, the sand and sound of water, the smell of wood and smoke, the aroma of fresh bread and sizzling fish on the fire. There is one seated near the fire. He lifts his head and he looks straight at you and smiles. His hand beckons you to come to him, to sit, to talk and to share. He puts his arm around you and he wipes away your tears. You know you're accepted. You have hope for eternity and a faith that can move mountains. You are loved by one who will never leave you or forsake you. Come to his table this morning. Look to the one who went down into the earth and conquered it, 
the one whose voice the wind and the waves obey, the glorious risen Lord. He wants to feed and nourish you and strengthen you this morning. He wants to reassure you, to give you a hope and a future. He has risen to give you life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you afresh today and ask to meet you as you met with your disciples on that lake shore. Help us to love as you love and help us to follow you forever. In John 6 verse 51, Jesus said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Accept his invitation and come to him afresh this morning as you take the bread and the wine. I'd like to invite all of you who know and love Jesus to partake of communion with us this morning. Come up and take a glass and a piece of bread and take and go back to your seat and just meditate on the music and think about what we've discussed this morning. Our choir is going to sing to us during communion this morning. It's going to be really special. Bless you. Amen.